This sermon, The Power in a Powerful Gospel, was preached by Tim Lambros on Sunday, May 1st, 2022 at Sovereign Grace Church. Uh, Let's stand. I want to read verses 32 to 43. If you're new around here, we stand in reverence to the Word of God and set apart this time during the preaching event. Acts chapter 9, verse 32. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aenus, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aenus, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And when she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Please take your seats while I pray. Oh Lord, how amazing your word is. That these miracles are documented, that your word is alive and still speaking today. So Lord, we pray you would speak through this word to us. We pray you would speak loudly to us, individually and as a church. And we trust that your spirit is active here today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. In the 1992 presidential election, James Carville made a name for himself. He was a a campaign aide to the Clinton candidacy, but he continually pounded the nail that the campaign should focus on the economy. Soon the, the phrase, it's the economy stupid, was plastered in every print piece, was integrated in every campaign message, every campaign effort office, even above door jams, that phrase would be seen. Bill Clinton was elected president, and it's the economy, stupid, found its way into the American political lexicon. Well, as I studied these two miracles, uh, early on, I had to ask the question, like we always do when we open up God's word, what was God's intent in having Luke include these miracle accounts? 
and drawing off a profound statement that one of our pastor's college professors stated, uh, Mike Bullmore, he said, and I'll never forget it, God's word will yield to diligent study. God's word will yield to diligent study. And sometimes it's not easy to figure out God's intent and the original author's intent. But in just a few days with some more study, I found myself saying to myself, not to anybody, it's about the power, stupid. (laughs) It's about the power, stupid. Because we know from a little bit of study that miracles are signs. Miracles are pointers. Luke would not have included this so that every church would have healing services. No, there's something better and something deeper about this. So I can't say it's about the power, stupid. So you'll hear me say, it's about the power, Christian. It's about the power of the gospel, Christian. So here's what we learned today. Very simple. The advancing gospel displays the power of God. So if you're a note taker, write that down. The advancing gospel, the gospel on the move displays the power of God. And we're going to look at two very powerful displays of the gospel here in these two uh, miraculous events. And that's how I'm going to outline it. Point one, the healing of Aeneas. Point two, the resurrection of Tabitha. Very simple But before we go there, I just want to draw your attention. Look at the verse right before where we started, verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. God is on the move. And we can take these summaries of of Luke and just get used to them. But the gospel is expanding. Remember in Acts 1.8. You will be my witnesses. Where? In Jerusalem. We saw that. I don't know if they just got a little too cozy because God brought a persecution, scattered them. They're in Judea and Samaria now. The gospel is on the move. People are getting saved. Churches are being formed. And so by the time we get to verse, well, these two miracles, you'll see the gospel advances. People believe. Conversion growth is happening People are putting their trust in the Lord. So in verse 32 here, we see the healing of Aeneas. Luke has this kind of funny phrase. Uh, Now, Peter went here and there. What do you mean by that, Luke? I can't wait to ask him that. Peter went here and there. But in context, he's going out. Remember, the last we heard about Peter was chapter 8, verse 25. Uh, Philip is out, and things are happening. And, you you know, the head honchos in Jerusalem like, Peter and John, you better go check this out and check on its legitimacy. And so they go out, probably partially suspicious of what's going on, and, and probably also just want to see what the Lord is doing. And so Peter's here and there, outside of Jerusalem, outside of his comfort zone. And now Luke takes the camera on Peter in Lydda with this paraplegic, this paralyzed man called Aeneas. Very briefly, he says this, verse 33. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. Most likely, Aeneas fell in the workplace and was paralyzed or had a stroke and he was paralyzed. But in this culture, 
being bedridden for eight years. I mean, he had no motorized uh, 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 wheelchair that he could run up to Starbucks. This was a difficult life. This was a consequence of something that caused him to be bedridden. And now Peter, outside of Jerusalem, finds himself, the text says there were some saints there, probably people that got saved and converted through Philip's ministry. There's some, there's some believers there. And he's looking at a paralyzed man. And then very simply, Luke records in, in verse 34, and Peter said to him, Aenus, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. Peter appropriately says, Jesus Christ heals you. You notice how all the TV healing ministries draw attention to themselves. Peter appropriately states, Jesus Christ heals you. And then this interesting statement, rise and make your bed. Very similar to what he observed Jesus doing in the Gospels. Rise as evidence that the power of God has interacted with you. The power of God has healed you. Rise and make your bed. In that day and age, there wasn't uh, permanent beds. Many times you had to roll up your mat and put it away for the day. Rise up and make your bed. And sometime this week, go read Luke chapter 5, 17 through 26, and Mark 2, 1 through 12, where a group of disciples lower a paralyzed man through the roof because the crowd is so big they can't get their friend to see the Savior. And Jesus heals that paralytic, but if you go and study it, you'll notice that first he says, your sins are forgiven. And then the scribes and the Pharisees, they start thinking, and they, they must have totally been caught off guard because Jesus perceived what they were thinking because they immediately said, wait a minute, only God forgives sins. And Jesus addresses that. And he basically says, what's the difference if I say your sins are, forg- are, for- are forgiven or if I say rise up and make your bed? Essentially, he's saying, it's the power, stupid. I'm the son of God. I have power to forgive sins and I have power to heal. It is I am above those, that dominion. And so I, I had fun going back and reading it. I recommend you study it because in light of what Luke is showing us here, it really does help you focus on the Son of God has power to do this kind of stuff. Paul would write later to the Roman church in chapter 1. You're probably familiar with this. I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and then also to the Greek. Luke uses these miracles. This man, Aenus, instantly healed after eight years of the consequences of sin being in this world. Things like that happen. You fall, you're paralyzed, there's sickness, there's disease, and we'll see in a minute, there's death. It's about the power, Christian. There's real power in this gospel that we are talking about. And then, of course, like in every section of Acts, all the residents of Lydda, 
and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now, I don't know if you've known a paraplegic or been personal friends with one. Obviously, probably in our generation, the most highest profile paraplegic, Stephen Hawking, an atheist, very intelligent man, a lot of high profile. He died three, years, three or four years ago. I personally knew one in the very first church I went to. His name was Neil. He was a theological giant. Our senior pastor would ask him something in the middle of a sermon, but he had to move a motorized wheelchair way back in the early 80s. And then more recently, it's probably been a couple of years, but there's a real nice guy at the Starbucks at Grant and Swan. And I remember one time I saw him regularly there and I remember one time he was at a table, and I thought, you know, he might enjoy if someone just sat with him. And I was reading or something, and I said, could, could I use the rest of this table? If you ever been to that Starbucks, it's really, well, it's not even there anymore, but it was really tight. There was not very many seats. And he lit up. So I just thought about the paraplegics that I was, uh, I've had contact with. And, you know, if Neil back at our first church or this guy at Starbucks got healed and walked in the next day to that Starbucks and ordered his drink, it would have my attention. <laughs> People would be like, what happened? There would be a message he could portray. And that's what Luke is doing here. This is a miraculous thing. Maybe you've never seen a miracle. We can't expect to, to, that God's going to always do miracles for us. It's about the power Christian, there's power in this gospel. The point is that sin came into this world and sin causes sickness. In the garden, there was no sickness. This man was bedridden for eight years and the power of the gospel comes and he's instantly healed. That's power. That should get our attention. And then people are drawn to Jesus, not to Peter, because Jesus Christ healed him. God advances the gospel, puts his power on display, and people believe. Oh, church, I, 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 I like what uh, God has Peter doing here, and many of you do this. You just get out there in the midst of what God is doing and things happen. Peter's just going to check out some stuff and all of a sudden he's with this person that's been bedridden for eight years. He speaks some truth and he sees a miracle. He's in the middle of God's advancing gospel. Luke probably uses a little hyperbole here. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. That's not uncommon to use some hyperbole. But a lot of people got saved through this sign revealing the power of the gospel. Part of me is a little jealous. But I'm more convinced today that being involved in God's gospel advance allows us, allows me to participate in something so much more amazing than any personal accomplishment or any hobby 
or anything like that. The gospel is the power of God for the salvation of souls. It is unstoppable. And this miracle is to grab our attention and ask us the question, what kind of power do I think and I believe is in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Let's look at this next most amazing miracle in verse 36 where a human being actually dies and is resurrected from the dead. Verse 36. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died, and when they washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Tabitha is a disciple, probably was converted when Philip preached the gospel as part of the dispersion. Her life was characterized by good works and charitable acts. But unfortunately, she becomes sick and dies. You and I can relate to this because it doesn't take long to be a part of this church to be affected by somebody's serving gifts, charitable acts. And when God chooses to take one of our fellow members home, a Dave Frank or a Jeremiah Richards, it hurts. There's some mourning that goes on. It's not easy. That's a good sign. Because if we just had these casual relationships and being a part of a church was a social thing or a kind of a, a vendor person relationship, there wouldn't be much feeling of loss there. And so this church, this little church, loses someone that seems to have had an impact on at least the widows of this church. And so here's Peter, here and there, out, looking into the advance of the gospel. A healing occurs in one town. If, if you understand geography, Jerusalem is, is about 50, 60 miles in from the, the water and Moving towards the, the Mediterranean is, is where Lydda is. And then now Joppa is right on the coast. Uh, today it's actually a suburb of Tel Aviv, if I, if I uh, researched it correctly. And so he's 10 miles away, and someone says, uh, let's go get Peter. We're not, we don't know why. Did they think miracle? Did they just want to be comforted? He's, he's from the, the mothership. We're not told why. But... The gospel's advancing. Peter's out there. He's now being more and more involved. And so when he arrives, he's immediately struck with two things. So look at verse 39, uh, verse 38. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. He's confronted with grieving widows all wearing the, 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 the garments that this precious saint had made for them. It seems like her charitable act were targeted to the hurting widows in this newly formed church community. And secondly, he's upstairs with a corpse. I would not know what to do. I'm texting Derek and Tommy, get over here. I don't know what to do. 
And these next few moments are just amazing. Second part of verse 39. All the widows, widows stood behind him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. How precious. They lose the saints. They're in the burial process. They all wear what they were blessed with by this saint. They're mourning. They're hurting. Verse 40. Peter, taking a page out of Jesus' playbook, probably fresh, like, what do I do? Well, this is what Jesus did. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. Peter puts them all outside. It's a chaotic scene. You've got a corpse. You've got mourning widows. He puts them all outside and does the very appropriate thing. Praise. Wouldn't you love to know what he prayed? He goes to the Lord. And all that Luke records is he knelt down and prayed and turning to the body, doesn't even say her name, turning to the corpse, turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. Now what's fascinating about this passage is in Mark 5, 41, Jesus does the very same thing with a little girl named Talitha. Talitha Kumi, arise. It's fascinating. Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes when she saw Peter and sat up. I don't know if you know the story of Dr. Paul Youngie Cho, but when I became a Christian, I was in the Assemblies of God movement. And in 1958, Dr. Paul Youngie Cho went to Seoul, South Korea to start a church. It's known as the largest church in the Guinness Book of World Records had upwards of 700,000 members in the course of his 40 years. They owned a mountain and their counseling procedures was, you came in with marital problems, you went up to the prayer mountain for three days, and then you met with the leaders. 23,000 small groups were recorded at one time. And I remember being a young Christian listening to this, and the guy was hilarious. I, I listened to a, you guys know what a cassette tape is, some of you younger people? <laughs> so listening to a cassette tape of his story, and when he went over there, he's got this you know, Asian accent, so he's fun to listen, he says, uh, yeah, when we start the church, we fast and pray very much, uh, not because we're spiritual, but because we broke. You know? <laughs> and he tells his story. So he's starting to build the church, and then as an assembly of God, he believed God would heal. So on a Sunday night, he has a healing service, um, and he teaches a little bit, and then he says, if any of you that need healing, you come up. And then he shares what he was thinking while they were coming up. It's hilarious. He goes, Lord, just give me a small case like a flu or cold, please, please. <laughs> Some guy comes up that can't hear and he's got to pray that God would. Anyway, it's a funny story. The point being, I have no idea what Peter's thinking. But he does the right thing. He bows his knee to the one who can raise from the dead. The one that did raise from the dead. And then he sees this corpse open her eyes. And she sat up. 
And then verse 41, so amazing. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. He gave his hand and raised her up. Those words, raised her up, are the exact same original words that the Bible uses. It says, and God raised Jesus from the dead. God raised Jesus with the same power that he's using to raise Tabitha. We saw in our Good Friday service just a couple of weeks ago the horror that Jesus went through and then the absolute devastation of being separated from God. He yells out, why have you forsaken me? And now we know Jesus was forsaken so God could raise him up that we would not be forsaken. And that same power is on display in raising up Tabitha. When you and I are born again, maybe it's not as fancy of a miracle as coming back from the dead, but you do come back from the dead because the Bible says that before we were in Christ, we were dead in our sins. And God used the same power to raise us up to relationship with him for eternity. It's the power, Christian, of the gospel to do this kind of work. Whereas with Aenus, we see sickness came into the world, difficulty, pain, paralysis, instantly reversed when the power of the gospel confronts. Here, we know death came in after the garden, and death has reigned in this arena, in this world, until Christ was raised up and overcame death. That's why Paul celebrates in his letter to 1 Corinthians a whole chapter on this. But I'll just read verses 15, uh, chapter 15, verses 56 and 57. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel has the power to overcome death. We don't regularly pray for loved ones that have passed to be resurrected, but there's power for whatever God wants to accomplish. I don't think Jeremiah or Dave Frank would be very happy if they got a glimpse of Jesus and then we prayed them back here, but there's power in the gospel to overcome sickness and to raise the dead. I want to read to you this whole prayer of Paul in chapter one to just take this a, a little deeper. All from this phrase, and he raised her up. There's power there for us to understand. Paul writes this prayer in the letter to the Ephesians starting in chapter 15. I won't read the whole prayer, but I'll read most of it. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. 
having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called to called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and get ready, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. It's about the power Christian, it's about the power. This miracle is to help all Christians forever until he returns get a grip on the power in the gospel. And then, of course, following the same pattern, what do we see? Verse 41. He raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. What a day. Peter's like, I'm so glad I went on this journey. This is amazing, you know. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. Many believed in the Lord. So you see this cadence in both of these miracles. There's a report of a sickness, or in this case, a death. There's a healing, a resurrection. There's a report and confirmation of this miracle. And then there's a report of people getting saved. That's the advance of the gospel. That's what the power of the gospel can do. So the power in the gospel is there to save. We see that. Many believe. And we won't get into this into too much, but then there's power in the gospel to sanctify. Peter, in the next two chapters, is going to go to the school of progressive sanctification because although the gospel is advancing into these Gentile regions, Peter's got some inner attitudes that needs to be dealt with. But we get a little hint of it at the very last verse. And he, being Peter, stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. A tanner was scorned as a trade in Jerusalem. It was dirty. It dealt with dead animals. It was nasty. They needed to be by water. Makes sense where this tanner is working. Jesus stays with him. And there's more to come on his sanctification. But for now, look, there's power in the gospel to save. There's power in the gospel to sanctify simultaneously And there's power in the gospel to send. And that's where I want to talk with you as a church. There's power in the gospel to send. Church, we believe God is positioning us for more evangelism. And this message is not going to be a nice teed up uh, question for community group Um, I think this message calls us for a gut check. Do you really believe there's power in the gospel to arrest people right where they're at in their sin and transform them into the disciples of Jesus Christ? I was challenged with that question, having the privilege to study these. I have a friend, 
over 10 years now, I've got a brother, a lifelong friend. I've got a couple of other unsaved, by God's grace, ongoing friendships. And when I examined this power at work in an advancing gospel and thought about my life, I said, you know, I'm guilty of confessing a powerful gospel, but functionally, it's more like I've got a water pistol. You ever thought about the power in a water pistol? You can get someone wet, you can startle them, but nothing's going to radically transform their life. I think that's our gut check. Do you confess a powerful gospel, but functionally live like it's really not that powerful to change people? Oh, we confess with our mouth that the same power that God raised Jesus from the dead is available today, but we walk around and share the gospel like we're shooting a water pistol. Yeah, I mean, the gospel might help you be a good dad and, uh, you know, have a little more integrity at work, but radically arrest someone, transforming their life? Yeah, that kind of happened in the Bible times. That doesn't really happen anymore. I think that's the gut check for us as a church. I think that's where we have to examine our hearts and ask the question, what do I really believe about the power in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Church, listen. We believe in the coming months and the coming years, God wants to challenge this particular aspect of our mission. Our mission is to build a church community that primarily does two things, demonstrates the power of the gospel and proclaims the gospel. I think we do well on the demonstration side. I think over the years, God has brought transfer Christians over to to, to grasp a deeper and more profound understanding of the gospel and live in the good of it, and that's okay. If that's what God wants us to do and that's what God positions as church, that's fine, but we will never tire of trying to grow in the proclamation of the gospel. Scripture calls us to it. I feel like we're at a strategic place with the unity we have in the church and how God has prospered us in your giving. I couldn't resist, but it reminds me of a great scene in my all-time favorite movie, Hoosiers. If you remember that story, small high school in the 50s that went to the state finals and won Coach Norman Dale had a little sideshow. There was a little theme on the side. He was helping the, tr- the town drunk who knew tons about basketball to rehabilitate. And he gets them going. And then right when Jimmy comes back, how many of you have not seen the movie? This is bad. You're not nodding your heads. You've not seen the movie? Oh, man, we have some discipleship to do, Derek. So Jimmy, the town star, is back. And Shooter runs off and gets drunk again and goes back into his old habits. Coach Dale runs him down. He's in his little cabin. He's dunking him in the bathtub, getting him sobered. And I forget the exact word, but he looks at him and says, man, with Jimmy, all the cylinders are clicking. We're going to do this. It's just an inspiring scene. That's where I believe our church is at. (coughs) With the unity we're enjoying, the financial positioning, not like Tommy's Jimmy or anything, but uh, 
having another pastor here, I believe God wants to do something in our lives. But let me give you a warning here. We don't know what this is going to look like, but I can guarantee you this. If God grows us in this area, you're going to have a lot more unbelievers in your life. You're going to have relationships with more unbelievers. How do you become more evangelistic? How do you proclaim the gospel? You got to go out and hang around unsaved people. And guess what? If you hang around unsaved people, you're going to get exposed to lots of trouble. There are lots of hurting people out there. There are lots of broken people out there. There's lots of addictions out there. There's a lot of mental health situation. There's a lot of hopelessness out there. There's a lot of depression and so forth. And when God saves them, guess what? Newborn Christians need a lot of diapers changed. And so when I say, I believe God wants to expose us to the power of the gospel to send, a lot of that is rearranging our life to be prepared to be involved in more unbelievers' lives. And at that moment, that God is saving people and bringing them into the church, that's not a time to have a gut check about the power of the gospel. Now's the time to have the gut check. What do I believe about the gospel of Jesus Christ and the power inherent in the gospel. You don't want to do that when you got four or five people in your life wondering if Christianity can bring them any help. Now's the time for the gut check. So really the application question for us to leave is this. Do you believe there is real transforming power in the gospel that you preach. Do you really believe it can transform the lives of the people that you're around? Paul McKenna talks to people in the Border Patrol all the time. Do you believe there's real power to change their lives? Robin and Lynn are out all the time. Jesse and as a fireman and real estate people all these people we get to network with, do you believe, really deep down believe that the power we see in these kind of miraculous moments is available to transform their lives? That's our application question.